Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. For many years and in many countries, Jews have been advisors to kings and governments. Just to name a few, Don Isaac Barbanel, who wrote voluminous commentaries on the Bible and was at the same time an advisor to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain and to the King of Portugal in the 15th century. In my own time, Henry Kissinger was an advisor and secretary of state to President Nixon. However, oddly enough, when Jews finally got independence in the state of Israel, after almost 2,000 years, they are unable to run a stable government. We have had four elections in about two years, and the Likud party this week intends to bring a bill to dissolve the Knesset and initiate another election. If the bill passes, an election will be held on the first Tuesday after 90 days that doesn't fall on a holiday or a holiday eve this coming October. The present governing coalition will be defeated in every vote that will take place in the Knesset this coming week. In truth, this is disgraceful and is a result of the electoral system in which Knesset members owe their allegiance to their political parties and not to the general population. This is something that should be changed, and that's a subject unto itself. The saving factor in all this is that the people are patriotic and loyal to the nation, and the military is strong and loyal to the nation. In other words, the people are better than the politicians. So we will continue to see that the country is safe, Maybe someday the electoral system will be changed to represent the people and not the political parties. But these are the facts today, and they are sad facts. So I will do what I can to keep the listeners informed as we move forward. In truth, this is a little bit exciting since it's interesting to watch as a government less than a year old falls. Thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. 
I myself am a graduate of an Ivy League school in the United States, University of Pennsylvania. And at the time I went to school, I remember walking around the campus wearing a skull cap, and there was a very large Hillel house to uh, take care of the Jewish students. However, American campuses are now hotbeds of anti-Semitism. A survey taken in August 2021 by the organization called Alums for Campus Fairness, called ACF, found that almost four out of five recent or present Jewish college students have either experienced or heard firsthand about a fellow student making offensive or threatening anti-Semitic comments in person. A separate report by Hillel International and the Anti-Defamation League found that 32% of present college students surveyed reported personally experienced anti-Semitism directed at them, and an additional 31% reported witnessing anti-Semitism that was not directed directly to them. Even Jewish professors have problems. In one example, in early 2022, six professors in the City University of New York brought a civil rights lawsuit against their own union, the Professional uh, Staff Congress, calling it anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, and anti-Israel. And the truth of the matter is that the effects go beyond the direct victims. Almost seven out of ten students surveyed said that they avoid certain places, certain events, or situations because of their Jewish identity. Indeed, in February 2022, a bipartisan group of 39 members of Congress wrote to the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights out of concern, summarizing that this wave of anti-Semitism has had a detrimental impact at many American colleges and universities. On the whole, college administrations have been very slow to respond. In March, Forbes ran a story on this subject entitled, How Universities Continue to Turn the Blind Eye Toward Campus Anti-Semitism. That was the title of the uh, uh, report. And of course, the title itself says it all. Indeed, unchecked anti-Semitism on campus is bullying more and more Jewish students into hiding their Jewishness. Many avoiding Jewish events, some are hesitant to tell others that they are Jewish. Jewish groups across North America are getting more active on the issue. Hillel International is now working with the ADL on numerous campus initiatives. A new student-run Jewish organization called Jewish on Campus, known as JOC, was founded just two years ago. It's focused on fighting and helping students fight anti-Semitism on campus. Still, many people are nervous. In fact, parents in Plano, Texas, were so concerned 
about the, what their soon-to-be college-bound kids would encounter on campus, that they approached the Dallas Area Torah Association to do something about it. One of the parents explained, most of those kids have grown up in highly diverse and tolerant schools that have many Jews. They haven't experienced anti-Semitism. On campus, they're stepping out of their little Jewish bubbles and largely be on their own. We thought they could benefit from some extra preparation. The uh, interesting, this is the first time that parents have actually worried about their kids going to college for this reason. They don't know what to tell the kids. Should they wear a Star of David or necklace or anything? Should they attend a pro-Israel rally? Uh, roughly 20 high school seniors participate in the program now. The course introduced students to the resources run on their campus and give them confidence moving forward. Students met every week for three weeks, and what they were taught were subjects like Jewish pride, how to fight BDS and other anti-Israel propaganda, the roots of anti-Semitism, how to get involved on campus. Feedback from students and parents so far was very good. So word has gotten out, out about the success of this program to prepare kids for campus. Schools and federations and youth groups around the United States are already discussing plans for importing a, this program or running their own. The bottom line is it's a very sad commentary on the state of Jewish life in America in the 21st century that we need to prepare the kids for the anti-Semitism that they're likely to encounter on campus. But obviously this is something new. This is actually a new college prep course because rising anti-Semitism on the campus, something that didn't exist in my day, was obviously, obviously now a real problem. Today in the United States, the, uh, it's interesting that the, the parents' challenges that the kids going to college is, is something very serious. Now, it, the issue itself is not immune to international pressure, and it seems to be overly sensitive to these pressures. Israel and Jews who advocate, or even Christians who advocate for Israel, Israel constantly worry about the opinion of American college students. The campuses in the country have are now have a virulent anti-Zionism that purports to be about Palestinian rights but reality results in the marginalization and demonization of Jewish students. So there are many people worried about a perceived drop in support for Israel among American adults, particularly uh, Jewish uh, college students. And they're worried how this may affect American support for Israel in the Congress. Israel's concern for Americans' inputs about Israel is a curious phenomenon. One never reads about Americans concerned over Israel's opinions about Americans. Former President Barack Obama approval rating in Israel was really dismal, yet his low ratings didn't seem to factor in his decisions about American policy in general. Not only does America rarely consider Israeli opinion, 
but it really takes world opinion into consideration when making policy decisions. These are the facts. So what can explain Israeli and Israel, Israel advocates' obsession with American opinion of Israel? So the obvious explanation for why Israel and its advocates put so much emphasis on American opinion is because of the significant amount of American diplomatic and military aid that Israel receives from the United States. So the, the fear is that if American support dips below some imaginary line, Israel will lose American aid. And the fear over college students' opinions is that today's American college students are tomorrow's American leaders. And if they don't appreciate the U.S.-Israel relationship as college students, they won't support it as America's elected leaders when they grow up. That is a serious problem. America gives military and diplomatic aid to Israel because it's in America's best interest, not for any particular love of Israel. A strong American-Israel relationship has and will always be in America's best interest. Israel has become a dominant world power on many global stages. Its military innovation is world famous with creations that can bring down hundreds of enemy rockets and hunt terrorist masterminds hidden in tunnels. America uses Israeli input also. America is as important to Israel as Israel is no longer a weak and small country. So Israel is important to the United States. It would take Israel years to recover from a loss of American aid. No sensible advocate of Israeli strength would argue for ignoring America's leaders, but a healthy balance between caring and obsession must be found when it comes to Israeli concern over American support. Israel must take actions and policies it thinks right for itself and not be concerned with American or other people's perceptions. We have reached a point in our history in Israel where we can take policy steps that we were afraid to do in the past. Israelis and their advocates should no longer fret over what opinion polls seem to rate Israel's support on American college campuses and instead focus on progress on the ground in Israel. So there is, there has been a negative impact on the um, Israel-American relation on the college campuses. Israel has to take this into account. But at the same time, we have to keep moving forward and seeing that we have a strong Israel. A strong Israel is also in the best interest of the United States, and that we have to let the Americans continue to know that. Yeah, is the most loyal alloy, probably in the whole world. I'll be back after the break. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For Lighten Up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. There was a very lengthy editorial in the Jerusalem Post this week touching upon a subject which really has been bothering me, and it should bother all of us. So I'm going to quote from that editorial because it says it all. It has to do with U.S. diplomacy. The United States State Department made a significant diplomatic move last week when it upgraded its Jerusalem office to the Palestinians. The Palestinian Affairs Unit in the uh, embassy changed its name on Twitter to the U.S. Office of Palestinian Affairs in Jerusalem. So you can ask yourself, what's in a name? In this case, the answer is a lot. An embassy spokesman said the name change was done to better align with State Department nomenclature, but this is not just a technical move. The Palestinian Affairs Unit, which has been upgraded to the Office of Palestinian Affairs, called the OPA, has operated within the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem since the embassy moved there from Tel Aviv in 2018 under the Trump administration. Now, this name change, unfortunately, is not merely cosmetic. It is a sign of President Joe Biden's desire to stick by his election promise and reopen a U.S. consulate in Jerusalem to serve the Palestinians. In other words, reversing the action done by Trump. Both our Prime Minister Bennett and our alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid have emphasized They oppose reopening the consulate in Jerusalem that in effect function as an embassy to the Palestinians. Upgrading U.S. relations with the Palestinians from the heart of Jerusalem has an impact on the status of the city as Israel's capital. The issue is not about whether there should be a consulate to handle Palestinian affairs, which is an American decision. But why a U.S. consulate for the Palestinians should be based in Jerusalem and not, for example, in Ramallah, the Palestinian Authority seat of government? Israel has so far remained adamant about blocking the reopening of the U.S. consulate to the Palestinians in Jerusalem. It would be an unprecedented 
uh, action to have both the U.S. embassy in one country and a de facto embassy to a foreign entity operating from the same city. It should also be noted that the U.S. embassy and the building that formerly housed the consulate are both in West Jerusalem and there in areas not under dispute and not considered up for negotiations any future peace deal, if there ever be one. A U.S. delegation led by Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, a woman named Barbara Leaf, is currently in the region ahead of an expected visit by Biden. When Leaf met with the PA President Abbas in Ramallah on Saturday, he reportedly asked that the consulate in Jerusalem be reopened along with the PLO's office in Washington, which requires removing the PLO from the U.S. Foreign Terrorist Organization's list. Now, Abbas is reportedly increasingly frustrated by the way Biden has not made good on his electoral pledge to reopen the consulate handling the Palestinian affairs in Jerusalem. Biden has, however, rolled back other steps taken by Trump. For example, he restored $500 million in aid to the Palestinians that was cut by Trump. Israel-Palestinian relations do not seem to be high on Biden's priority at the moment. His expected visit to the region has already been postponed from this month to next, and it's likely that both the fragile condition of the Israeli government and its health and the, the plummeting hold of Abbas over the Palestinians and considerations to make the chance of jump-starting Palestinian-Israeli talks much more distant. That is what makes moves like renaming and upgrading the Palestinian Affairs Office in Jerusalem why this is so important. These are steps on the ground that can be taken unilaterally by the U.S., and unlike opening a consulate in Jerusalem, it does not require Israeli approval. Reopening the consulate for the Palestinians in Jerusalem would not progress a future peace process. Indeed, upgrading ties with the Palestinians in return for nothing but intransigence does nothing to encourage the Palestinians to return to negotiating table in good faith. Israel must continue to make clear to the United States that reopening the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem is a red line. This is a matter on which the broad spectrum of Israeli society agrees, everyone from right to left regardless of who holds the political reins. The friendship and the ties between Israel and the United States are deep and long-standing, but even friends and allies sometimes need to clarify boundaries. Some things are not up for negotiation, including Jerusalem's status as the capital of Israel. It's very interesting, by the way, that for years uh, in um, in the 1990s, the American uh, uh, Congress voted to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, keeping in mind that Jerusalem is Israel's capital city. Tel Aviv is not. As a matter of fact, Tel Aviv is not even the biggest city anymore in Israel. Jerusalem is now the biggest city, and it's still growing. So what happened was that for all the years, the Americans kept not moving their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, Israel's capital. There was some kind of technical reason they used every time. 
finally what happened was that President um, 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 Trump uh, said that's about enough of that. The, the American the Israel's capital is Jerusalem, and the American uh, consulate, the American embassy, should be in the capital of the country. And he had it moved. It's not. By the way, it's about a mile away from where I live. I had occasion to go there the other day. They have a very nice building. Uh, at any rate, what's happening now is the Biden administration is making moves to essentially weaken uh, Israel's position as being the capital of Israel. And this is something that really has to be watched. Uh, this this uh, naming of the, uh, this, this, uh, the Palestinian Affairs Unit, now called uh, the, uh, whatever they call it now, Office for Palestinian Affairs, the uh, move, moving it, uh, giving it that name is really a stab in the heart of Israel. Jerusalem is our capital. Ramallah is where the Palestinian Authority has its office. There is still no Palestinian state. And the idea of, uh, of the, the Americans recognize uh, some kind of official Palestinian uh, uh, standing in Jerusalem is really an attack upon Israel's sovereignty, and it's something that has to be watched. Uh, this changing of the, this um, portion of the uh, U.S. Embassy is something that was like under the headlines. You don't hear much about it, but the Jerusalem Post picked up on it and uh, wrote a, a long um, editorial, which I pretty much read now to the listeners because I want them to understand what's happening. This is very unfortunate if, uh, if the friendship we have with the United States is going to uh, be in any way harmed by the Biden administration. You have to keep in mind that Israel and the United States are close allies and information, particularly uh, information about weaponry and defense and things of that nature, flow back and forth between Israel and the United States. And the Biden administration may be taking steps to weaken that relationship, and that's something that we have to keep an eye on. It's, uh, I remember how happy we all were when uh, Trump moved the uh, American uh, embassy to Jerusalem, which is Israel's capital city. I don't know if there are any other countries in which the uh, U.S. embassy is not in, in the capital city. It may well be that in some uh, small countries, for example, in Africa, I, I could check it out, uh, where there, the uh, embassy is in one country and it represents itself in other countries by uh, some kind of a mission. But the, what the, the Biden administration is doing now is really an attack on Israel's sovereignty in our own capital. By the way, since the last couple of years, uh, there's been a uh, distinct upturn in incitement on the Israeli campuses against Jewish students, Arab students against Jewish students. And these events have taken place in a sort of a wave of terror. And uh, we have a real real serious problem with our uh, the Arab minority, which is a subject unto itself. But the bottom line remains that we must stand on the fact that Jerusalem is our capital, 
and and there is it is not the capital of any other nation, nor will it be. And we have to let the Americans know this, because the present administration is doing something that will weaken our hold on our own capital, uh, at least in the eyes of the world. And we cannot allow something like this to happen. So I'll keep, as I said, I'll keep an eye on this issue. And I'll uh, keep the uh, listeners informed. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. We're back with Jay Shapiro. I just want to share a few thoughts about Israel's borders. Uh, Israel has no defined borders at the moment. We're probably one of the only countries in the world that does not have defined borders. So there is no shortage of pro and con and anti-Israel groups who know what the future borders should be like. Palestinians Palestinians would like a state from the river to the sea, eliminating the question of Israeli borders because they'd like to eliminate Israel. On the other side, one segment of the national religious Jewish community in Israel wants a state from the river to the sea. So if you're a liberal Zionist, the answer to borders is not so clear. Boundaries should be determined to create a Jewish and democratic state that disengages from the two and a half million Arabs who live in the West Bank and Gaza. And the liberal Jews would like to base this on the 1967 lines before the Six-Day War. Unfortunately, you cannot guarantee that Hamas will not take over the West Bank or that it will remain demilitarized, and Israel needs freedom of action to enter into secure enter these areas if security breaks down. Israel has to control the air, the sea, and the Jordan River Valley, something no Palestinian leader would accept. One of the Israeli negotiators who has advised Israeli governments for over 30 years said the conflict is what makes you a Palestinian. Palestinian identity is primarily about opposition to Zionism. There was no one known as a Palestinian until right after the Six-Day War. Then they put together what they called the Palestinian Covenant, 
and this created the Palestinian people. So to Palestinians, the Abraham Accords between Israel and other uh, Muslim nations, uh, which acknowledge that Jews have a right to be here, this conflicts with their negation of Jewish national rights. Palestinian society glorifies a narrative even if they don't believe it. There is a Palestinian-Israeli journalist named Khaled Abed Toama, and he writes in articles in Israeli papers, and he said, if the Palestinians have an election, they'll vote for the guy who wants to destroy Israel. Who wants to destroy Israel. He also said that if you watch t Palestinian TV for five minutes, you would like to grab an axe and kill a Jew. He said, I can't find one Palestinian willing to talk about concessions with Israel. Palestinian education starts at home. Jews don't belong here. The Jews stole the land, and Palestine is considered compensation for the Holocaust that the world gave to Israel. And it is really Palestinian land, and the Jews have no right here. This is what Europeans and many American foreign policy experts purposely ignore, and why there is no partner at the moment to mutually agree to a defensible Israeli border in the foreseeable future. If you are a person who prior, prioritizes Israel's security above all, the answer is much more complex. The security-oriented group prioritizes Israel's defensible borders and demographics, but realize you need to remain in good standing with your allies, and this poses unique challenges. Explaining why security considerations must dictate final boundaries should be self-evident. However, making the case to nations, other nations that have swallowed the Palestinian narrative makes this a very difficult thing to do. Now, Donald Trump's peace to prosperity plan, which was put aside by the Biden administration, but Donald Trump's plan attempted to prioritize Israeli security concerns, but it was never taken seriously. Despite it was an attempt to solve long-standing differences with innovative ideas, the trouble, the problem was, I think, was it was Donald Trump who was involved. And Donald Trump is a persona non grata to many people. However, it did have many creative ideas. It tried to bridge the divide between Israeli security while calling for a Palestinian state. Now, that is something which maximalists on both sides oppose. So, the question is at the moment, is it worthwhile for Israel to begin the arduous process of bringing together its security, intelligence, and defense experts to come to some kind of consensus on what Israel's minimum territorial requirements are? And now, 
this all can only happen if and when a government believes it's time to have what every other nation or world has, defined borders. Israel does not have defined borders, and it's very difficult to define borders when your immediate neighbor wants to destroy you. So I just wanted to share this thought with the uh, with the listeners. Is Israel at a time when it can define its borders? The answer is no. We are not at a right time. When will there be a right time for Israel to define its borders? I'm afraid it is not for the foreseeable future. And yes, that's a thought I just wanted to share with the listeners who are concerned about Israel's borders. For the immediate future, for the foreseeable future, Israel cannot define its borders. And on the topic of Israel's borders, I want to uh, quote for the listeners the fact that uh, unsurprisingly, the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, issued a report that continues to be one-sided, biased, uh, and it's blinded by a hatred for Israel. And instead of standing up for the values upon which the UN was supposed to be founded, it prefers to give credence to terrorists and forces that actively work to undermine democracy. The UN put out a report by its commission of inquiry, and in the report, they concluded that Israel is largely to blame for its conflict with the Palestinians. It said, and I quote, that the commission notes the strength of prima facie credible evidence available that convincingly indicates that Israel has no intention of ending the occupation, has a clear policy of reassuring the complete control of occupied Palestinian territory, and Israel is acting to alter the demography through the maintenance of a repressive environment for Palestinians and a favorable environment for Israeli settlers. That is what the UN report said. And of course, Israel slammed the report, and Israel said it was nothing more than a waste of money and an effort of the United Nations and it's part of the parcel of the witch hunt carried out by the Human Rights Council against Israel. The, uh, it turns a blind eye to Palestinian terrorism. The report turns a blind eye and embraces the Hamas narrative that Israel is the root cause of all the conflict. This is exactly what we expected from the UN who actively lobby governments to sanction Israel and call Israel an apartheid country. The, um, by, uh, in, it's interesting, by the way, in the UN report, the number of times Israel and, and Hamas appeared to report, Israel was mentioned 157 times, and the ha- Hamas just three times, and the Islamic Jihad and Iran were not even mentioned once. So it, it's very sad. As I said, the nature of the conflict here is such that Israel is cannot at the moment define its borders, while at the same time, 
It is continually accused by the UN of being um, an occupier, and it's really something that, that uh, it's very Kafkaesque. Uh, to a certain extent, the UN, the United States recognized this and also made a negative comment about the UN um, report. Question is, can we really expect anything fair and objective to come out of the UN? And sadly, we know the answer is, but UN needs to be know what the consequences are for its actions. The, the UN is helping to perpetuate the conflict and war. The fact is, on the same day that the report came out, Israel announced it was increased in number of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who were allowed to come into Israel daily to work. Israel is looking for some way of resolving the problem. The UN is opposed to Israel and anything Israel does. It's sad, but it's true. Thanks for listening. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.